Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of a Live Unto My Path podcast. I am your host Howard Sides and today we're continuing our study through the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 19 today and have been for a while, which it's a pretty big chapter. There's a lot of information here, which most of these chapters are, but just saying. <laughs> uh, we're almost done. Uh, we're at verse 19 of chapter 19, so we've only got three verses to go. Uh, but there's quite a bit that's mentioned here, so uh, we'll try and get through this uh, in probably the next two, maybe three podcasts. To, I'm going to close out the chapter, uh, hopefully as soon as I can. I'm trying to do it today if I can. I don't run out of time. Still got some things I got to get done around here, studying for my Sunday school lesson uh, and that sort of thing. So trying to wrap it all together. You know, you try and I'm sure you have the same thing. And some, some days you try and get 25 things done in the time you've got to get two done. So <laughs> that's what's going on. But anyhow, uh, so let's get right to it. Today, uh, we're going to be, uh, as I said, in verse 19. And this is the second of three thoughts under uh, this section we are under, uh, we're in right now, the avenging of heaven's king, which is verses 17 through 21. Uh, now, uh, 17 and 18, we saw where Satan's forces were uh, doomed. Uh, here at verse 19, we'll be talking about Satan's forces drawn, uh, basically brought together. And then verse 20 and 21, Satan's forces are destroyed. Uh, so let's just get right into it. I'm going to read the rest of the chapter. All right, verses 19 through 21. <laughs> okay, so it's not a lot. So uh, let's read chapter 19 and where we're at. Verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and then that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh." Okay, so here in verse 19, that first phrase, and I saw the beast and the kings of the army, or, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together uh, to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. So uh, the stage is set for what is thought to be, or what is sometimes mentioned as, uh, the greatest battle the world has even known, or ever known. Yeah, ever known, not even known. Let me fix that typo there. Okay, now on the common use of the word battle to describe this situation, uh, Alfred Plummer, uh, an English theologian uh, and historical writer from the late 1800s said, and I quote, it is this final terminal opposition of evil to God's will which is here styled a battle. It will not be a battle in any ordinary understanding of the word, but the final conflict will be so severe that it fully deserves the title. This is not the struggle that takes place after Christ comes, but the one that is going on now. The warfare takes place while Christians are still upon earth. End quote. And I agree with him. I mean, the battle and the struggle is right now. 
uh, when the Lord returns, it's going to be whoop, and it's done. It's going to be over. So uh, there is evidence that suggests there will be some kind of a struggle or infighting between the various armies of the Antichrist. Uh, but with the appearance of Jesus Christ and his army, uh, these armies forget their differences and join together to wage war against him. Now, James Burton Kaufman, in his commentary, he said, How strange, how tragic is this situation in which the kings of the earth unite in one terrible effort to destroy the anointed of God. How contrary this revelation is to the dreams of men and the foolish statements of their false prophets that human society is ever progressing. How so true. End quote. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> Now, addressing this similar thought, Ralph Earle, who was an early 1900s biblical scholar himself, wrote, and I quote, Never before has there been such a widespread revolt against all standards of decency and honesty. Never before have religious leaders advocated not only a new theology, but a new morality, which flouts God's laws. The stage is being rapidly set for the end of the age, end quote. This is a guy from the early 1900s who is saying that the religious leaders are not only talking about new Bibles, but they're throwing out all the rules of God's law. What in the world would he think about today? <laughs> right? I mean, man, it's been over 100 years, 120 years, and we have, well, what's that old commercial? We've come a long way, baby. <laughs> I, it's sad to say, but we have, and it's a shame. It, it's frightening to think how fast evil is progressing and, and, and multiplying in its, in its course. Now this brings us to our final point here. Uh, Satan's forces are destroyed in verses 20 and 21. And within this, there's two sides of it. Verse 20 describes uh, Jesus dooms the Antichrist and the false prophet. And then in the second part, we see Jesus destroys the Antichrist's faded puppets. And verse 21. Uh, well, actually, yeah, okay, there's actually three. Uh, okay, I didn't realize that, sorry. The first one in verse 20, Jesus dooms the Antichrist and false prophet. The second one in the first part of verse 21 is Jesus destroys the Antichrist's faded puppets. And then the third one is uh, the end of verse 21, where the fowls divine, or the fowls dine on the arch enemy's fallen pundits. Uh, okay, I was just having fun with some of these titles, so I was just trying to make them fit. Okay, so Jesus dooms the Antichrist and false prophet. Verse 20, and we're going to see here, uh, first of all, they're caught in their horrible act, and then second, they're cast into hell alive. So caught in their horrible act. Uh, we see in the first phrase, and the beast was taken. The beast was taken. Now, what is uh, noticeable out this uh, phrase here is it says that the beast is taken. It doesn't say that the beast was killed. It doesn't say the beast was caught. It says the beast was taken. Uh, now, the word taken in the Greek is the word piazzo. I'm sorry, that's stuff going on in the other room. They're fine. I know you can hear the screaming. <laughs> I'm just trying to get through this today. Okay, so hopefully you'll just laugh with me and just keep going. 
So the Greek, uh, the word taken here in the Greek is piazzo, which means to squeeze or basically to seize by grasping it with a hand uh, or to arrest or to capture, as in a hunt. Now, as soon as events uh, start taking place, the Antichrist will be snatched up and carried away captive as was threatened in Revelation 13.10, where we're told, He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Uh, so he that leadeth into captivity is going into captivity. And that part about he that killeth with the sword be killed with the sword, that's what happens to the ones that follow him. So this will be personally handled by Christ himself, which was also promised back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8, which says, And then shall that wicked be revealed, uh, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now, John Trapp suggests that the use of the word taken here tells us that the Antichrist will be captured while he is fleeing. There is a historical record of a thief during the time of Emperor Severus, who was so cunning that despite the emperor's best means, uh, could never be caught. As a matter of fact, he was actually never caught. But here, the Antichrist will not be able to escape. And John Trapp added, uh, Venit, vidit, visit, which means he came, he saw, and he conquered. So anytime you use that phrase in the Latin, it's venit, vidit, visit. Yeah, he came, he saw, he conquered. Okay, next part of that verse. And with him, the false prophet that wrought miracles before him. Now, notice that the false prophet is specifically identified as the one who performed miracles. Revelation 13, 11 describes the false prophet as another beast in that he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, the mark of the Antichrist. Now, uh, the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary states, and I quote, The first beast is political. The second is spiritual. Both are beasts anti-Christian wisdom serving anti-Christian power, both lion and serpent, as God's moral government requires that judgment should begin at the house of God, executed on the harlot, the faithless church, by the world power with whom she intrigued, so also that the world power, after being God's instrument of punishment, should itself be punished. As the harlot is judged by the beast and the ten kings, so these are destroyed by the Lord in person. Now, in the following verse, uh, verse 21, uh, we'll see that the armies are slain, but the leaders are taken as prisoners of war. Now, the purpose here is that while the armies are destroyed and Christ is victorious, the responsibility is that of the leaders. Those responsible for this war will be taken and will see a more severe punishment than death on the battlefield because they have stirred up the armies and assembled them before the purpose of war against the Messiah. Now, the next phrase, uh, with which he deceived them that had received the mark uh, of the beast and them that worship his image. Or Albert Barnes notes that it is by these arts that they are deceived and then led into the alliance having been continually sustained in their opposition to the truth. 
He goes on to say that the whole representation of this alliance to prevent the spread of true religion would be like the Catholics and the Muslims combining forces where one would be sustained by the pretended miracles of the other. It is worth noting here that the deception is upon those specifically mentioned as having the mark of the beast, because those who remain faithful to the Lord will not be deceived. All right, so that covers the first part, uh, caught in their horrible act. Now let's note the second part of this, cast into hell alive. Now notice the next phrase, it says, both were cast alive. These both were cast alive. Note that two men in the Bible have been taken to heaven without tasting death, which were Enoch and Elijah. Here, two men are cast alive into the lake of fire without tasting death. And we are also told in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10 that they are still in torment a thousand years later when Satan is cast there. Revelation 20 verse 10, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now on this point, Harry, <clears throat> Harry Ironside said, two men, be it noted, are taken alive. They are the two arch-conspirators who have bulked so largely in this book, The Beast and the False Prophet, the civil and religious leaders of the last league of nations, which will be Satan-inspired in its origin and Satan-directed until its doom. These two men are cast alive into the lake burning with fire and brimstone, where a thousand years later they are still said to be suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Thus, incidentally proving that the lake of fire is not annihilation and that is not purgatorial either for it neither annihilates nor purifies those these two fallen foes of God and man after a thousand years under judgment and basically what his point is here is that some people think that the lake of fire is like a purging thing uh, well, they're going to go to the lake of fire, but then they're going to come out as cleaner. They're going to come out as better. They're going to come out as more right. That, no, that ain't going to happen. And that uh, uh, the other idea of it is, well, once you're cast to the eternal fire, the lake of fire, it's going to burn you up and you turn into ash. That's not true. This verse shows all of that. It proves all of that as wrong. Um, <clears throat> okay, Matthew Henry, uh, in his commentary, also said, uh, on this point, uh, and I quote, the victory gained by the great and glorious head of the church, the beast and the false prophet, the leaders of the army are taken prisoners, both he who led them by power and he who led them by policy uh, and falsehood. These are taken and cast into the burning lake, made incapable of molesting the church of God any more, and their followers, whether officers or common soldiers, are given up to military execution and made a feast for the fowls of heaven. So, another description of this little phrase there. All right, now let's look at this next phrase. Into a lake of fire. Into a lake of fire. 
Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you've heard this phrase, I'm sure, many times before. Uh, but I wanted to point out that this mention of the lake of fire here is the first time this phrase is used out of four times. Uh, the next three are all in chapter 20. It's in verse 10, then again in verse 14, and then again, and finally, in verse 15. Now, the phrase lake of fire describes the same place referred to as hell fire in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Hell fire is the Greek word Gehenna, which is the same as the Hebrew word, uh, uh, which is two words put together. Uh, there's the word gi, which is uh, the valley of, and then hinnom, which is the son of. Am, am I saying that right? Hold on a minute. I got this all. Yes, uh, okay, uh, I'm getting it all turned around. Okay, so it's two Hebrew words put together. Gi, which is the valley of, or the son of, and then Hinnom, which is the, the word Hinnom, of course. It's the, the valley or the son of Hinnom, and then it's put together Gehenna, or Gehenna, which is a valley of Jerusalem. <clears throat> now, Gehenna was the valley outside the city walls. I'm sorry, I apologize for that. I just kind of lost my, I was trying to read over the notes. I'm, I'm sorry. But anyway, back on track. Gehenna was the valley outside the city walls used uh, to throw refuge, trash, dead bodies, etc., anything in it. And there was all, uh, also always a continually burning fire here, as well as ever-present worms eating the flesh. And, of course, you know, there's dead bodies laying there. We've all seen it. Maggots, that's, that's what we're talking about. Now, on several occasions, Christ used this place of Gehenna to describe hell and the experience of it. Uh, mainly four descriptive notations, two describe the place, while two describe the people. Uh, where their worm dieth not, and where the fire is not quenched. Now, it's unique here in that in Mark chapter 9, he repeats this phrase three times, verse 44, verse 46, and verse 48. And it's, uh, it is, it's verbatim. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Now Jesus spoke of hell as a place where their worm dieth not. Now when physical bodies are buried and begin to decay, the worms can attack them only as long as the flesh lasts. Once consumed, the body can experience no more harm. But the resurrected bodies of unbelievers will never be consumed, and the hellish worms that feed on them there will themselves never die. Now, as noted above, the garbage dump of Jerusalem was characterized by a perpetual fire, and because of the garbage was a place where worms thrived. This picture would be well known to the hearers of Jesus' words and would help understand his quotation from the very last verse 
in Isaiah 66, 24. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to quote that for you when I get it right. Uh, and they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Okay, Robert Morey, a Christian apologist and pastor of the California Biblical University and Seminary, wrote in his book entitled Death and the Afterlife, uh, he said, and I quote, The intertestamental literature is clear that the Jews believed that the departed could feel what was happening to their dead body. Indeed, when the worms start gnawing on the body, the worms are as painful to the dead as a needle in the flesh of the living. Also, Erwin Lutzer, who was the former senior pastor of the Moody Church, in his book, One Minute After You Die, also said, and I quote, This picture of an unclean dump where fires and worms never die became to the Jewish mind an appropriate description of the ultimate fate of all idolaters. Thus the word became applied to the ultimate Gehenna. The Jews taught, and Christ confirmed, that the wicked would suffer there forever. Body and soul would be in eternal torments. End quote. Now, a rather unique take on what these worms represent is given by a man named Norman Geisler, that's G-E-I-S-L-E-R, who's an American Christian systematic theologian and philosopher. And he wrote a book called When Critics Ask. And in that book, he wrote, and I quote, Why did Jesus say worms would not die in hell? Problem. Jesus said that hell is a place where their worm dieth not and the worm is not quenched. Mark 9, 44, 46, 48. But what do everlasting worms have to do with hell? Solution. Jesus is not speaking of earthworms nor any other kind of animal here. He is speaking about the human body. Notice he did not say where the worm dieth not, but rather where their worm dieth not. The antecedent of there is a human being who sins and dies without repentance. Mark 9, 42-47 Worm is simply a way to refer to the human worm or shell known as the body. This fits with the context where he is speaking of the parts of the body such as hands and the foot in Mark 9, 43-45. Jesus said here that we should not fear the one, man, who could destroy our body, but not our soul, but rather to fear the one, capital O-N-E, God, who could send soul and body into the everlasting flames. Luke 12, 4-5, and Mark 9, 43-48, quote. Now, taken alone at face value, this text is one of the most horrific descriptions of what hell is like. Uh, the thought of eternal torment, likened to maggots eating away at a rotting corpse, is undoubtedly ghastly. And, quite frankly, yeah, it is nasty, but it still does not fit scripturally, because what I just said, maggots eating away at a rotting corpse, that's something dead. 
the sinner who is cast into the lake of fire is not going to be dead, and he's not going to be rotting. So even then it magnifies the horror of, of a maggot sitting there eating on flesh that'll never go away, that'll never die in itself, if, that, if that's what it is. But hell is so awful that Christ said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 30, If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Think about that a minute. And that, that Jesus said that. Now Jesus here is teaching the fact of unending suffering in hell. The worm never stops causing torments. Notice also that the worm is personal. Both Isaiah 66, 4 and the three references in Mark 9, 44, 46, 48 use the word uh, or, or use the pronoun there, not uh, uh, the worm, but their worm to identify the worm's owner. Now, the sources of torment are attached each to its own host. Some biblical scholars believe the worm refers to a man's conscience. Those in hell being completely cut off from God exist with a nagging, guilty conscience that, like a persistent worm, gnaws away at its victim with a remorse that can never be mitigated. No matter what the worm, uh, no matter what the word worm refers to, the most important thing to be gained from these words of Christ is that we should do everything in our power to escape the horrors of hell. And there is only one thing to that end, receiving Jesus Christ as the Lord of our lives. As Norman Geisler thought the worm represented the flesh of the sinner, uh, John Greenleaf Whittier commented in a similar way. He said, and I quote, the saddest of all human words are, it might have been. In hell, every regret will be eternally remembered. Jesus said hell is a place where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. What did he mean by the worm that doesn't die? This was a reference to Gehenna, the smoldering garbage dump outside Jerusalem that became a synonym for hell. We said earlier that this place constantly bred worms because new garbage was always being dumped there. So, the worms never died. How does this apply to hell? Notice that Jesus used the pronoun there in identifying the worm. In other words, this worm belongs to somebody. We might call it a personalized worm. Jesus also used the singular word worm, not worms, plural. Just as worms or maggots on earth gnaw away on a dead body until it is gone, so the worm of hell gnaws away at the life of the condemned person. But the difference is that this gnawing never stops because the life it is gnawing on is never consumed. And the gnawing is highly personalized, their worm, because each person's level of regret will be unique to that person's life. This is the unending mental torment of hell. The churning of regret over lost opportunities for salvation poor choices made in life, and the condemnation of others whom the lost person loved. The rich man agonized for his brothers. I believe the mental suffering of hell will be so intense 
the person will be able to recall specific occasions where he or she heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and rejected it. <coughs> Excuse me. Those times will not only be vivid, but it will seem like it all happened yesterday. End quote. Okay, that... John Greenleaf Whittier, boy, he, he put it like it is. <laughs> and and I, I personally, um, if you ask me, is there really a worm, a literal worm in hell? Um, I kind of think along these lines that they're worm. Uh, there's places in the Bible where uh, human flesh is referred to as a worm. I'm but a worm. Uh, so... Yeah, I think that might fit. It may be these 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 sinners' guilty conscience is the worm that gnaws at them, because the way he describes it, it's going to be right. It's going to be uh, vivid and it's going to be literal and it's going to be a nightmare. I don't know how else to explain it. And, and it goes on uh, that next phrase where there will be weeping, wailing, and uh, weeping or wailing and gnashing of teeth. Uh, there are seven references all in the gospel uh, uh, to this phrase we just said. Uh, Matthew 8, 12. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, 42. And shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Uh, again, chapter 13 and verse 50. And shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Matthew twenty-two thirteen. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew twenty-four fifty-one. And shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew twenty-five thirty. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Luke thirteen twenty eight. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. Now, weeping and wailing together come from the Greek word klothmos, klothmos which comes originally from the word kleo, where klothmos means lamentation, but from the word kleo comes the further description of sobbing or to wail aloud. So where klothmos alone means sadness, the klau, by definition, the first part of that word means sobbing or to wail aloud. So it, basically what we see here is this level of weeping describes an inner pain of the heart, the mind, and the soul. It also denotes a bewailing or lamentation by beating the breast, an expression of immense sorrow. Uh, the phrase gnashing of teeth comes from the Greek word brugmos, brugmos, which means a grating or a grinding of the teeth. So, where the weeping and the wailing describes an inner pain of the heart, the gnashing of teeth describes an outward pain of the body. Taken together, the weeping, the wailing, and the gnashing of teeth says hell is a place of indescribable spiritual agony 
and unending physical pain. And when you understand that description, and then you read the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and you kind of see a little more clearly what this rich man is talking about. Luke 16, verse 23 through 28, we read, And in hell he, being the rich man, lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. So all of you that think that when you die and go to hell and you're just going to kind of lay around in limbo till things get worked out and then you're going to go to Party Central with Satan. No, my friend, you've been deceived. What does that say? I am tormented in this flame. He's not even in the lake of fire yet. Okay? He's in what we would call purgatory. He is being tormented at this very moment. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. This verse denies every doctrine of the Catholic Church of per, uh, paradise and penance, paying penance to get people out of purgatory into paradise. Abraham himself right there just said, there's a great gulf between us. I can't reach you, and you can't reach me. Verse 27. <clears throat> then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now, this outer darkness is a place of anguish, of heartache, of grief, and unspeakable suffering. Such will be the lot of all who reject Christ. Christ is the light of the world. Matthew 5.14 tells us that. When one rejects the light, he will be cast into eternal darkness. Just like the rich man in Luke 16, the one who rejects Christ will lose his chance for joy, blessing, and fellowship, and will be left with nothing but darkness and eternal regret. In his commentary, John MacArthur describes this phrase, and I quote, The torment of hell will not be limited to the pain of punishment, but will include the remorse, the shock, and surprise of those who ended up there despite thinking they were going to heaven. The more people in hell knew about the gospel, the more profound their remorse will be. Their pain will be proportional to their level of rejection. And since their rejection will be eternal and incurable, so will their sin be and the judgment of that sin. End quote. <clears throat> Christopher W. Morgan, a professor of theology and dean of the School of Christian Ministries at California Baptist University, said, and I quote, This suffering is conscious. If hell did not consist of conscious suffering, it would be hard to see how it could be in 
could in any meaningful sense be worse than death, be worse than earthly suffering, be filled with weeping and gnashing of teeth, or be a place of misery. These images communicate that people in hell will be aware that they are suffering a just punishment. End quote. Robert Morey, a Christian apologist and pastor, also said, and I quote, The phrase, the outer darkness, was a rabbinic expression which referred to Gehenna, where the wicked would be weeping and gnashing their teeth because of their pain and torment. The definite article is used to refer to the outer darkness, for example, Gehenna. Notice that the rabbinic phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, cannot be interpreted in any other way than to say that the lost will suffer excruciating pain and torment. This, this passage cannot be reduced to annihilation. End quote. In Luke 16, Jesus mentions the torment, the suffering, and the agony of the rich man three different times. Hell is where God's wrath is poured out. The Bible speaks of a fire that never burns out, a place where the worm does not die, a place of darkness and gloom where there is a continual weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, this lake of fire is describing the final abode of Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all wicked people. Now, John Woolvoord, he said in his commentary, and I quote, The doom of the beast and the false prophet culminates in their being cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. The lake of fire thus introduced is mentioned again in Revelation 20 and verse 15. <clears throat> By comparison with other scriptures, it seems that the beast and the false prophet are the first to inhabit the lake of fire. Unsaved who die prior to this time are cast into Hades, a place of torment, but not into the lake of fire, which is reserved for those who have been finally judged as unworthy of eternal life. End quote. Now, it is interesting to notice here that the Antichrist and the false prophet precede Satan into this lake of fire, even though we are told that hell was created for the devil and his angels in Matthew 25, 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So this phrase will tell all those who end up there that they do not belong there. All of mankind was meant for heaven. Hell was only intended for Satan and his angels. So... They didn't have to go. They chose to go. <clears throat> All right, one final phrase here. It says, burning with brimstone. Burning with brimstone. Now, definitions of brimstone. Uh, in the Old Testament, the word is gofreth, gofreth, uh, which means a cypress resin. By analogy, sulfur, uh, in the fact that it's equally flammable. They are both highly flammable. Uh, in the New Testament, the word for brimstone, uh, brimstone is theon, theon, which is the neuter version of theos, which means godlike or divinity, or divine or godhead. 
The word theon here in its origin means a sense of flashing, or it's also the name of sulfur. So it's describing an element that is highly flammable. Okay, so there you go. Uh, the two terms, theon and theos, put together describe an element that can be called the fire from God. Now, sulfur uh, looks like a yellow powder and turns blood red as flame is introduced to it. When it's burning, it releases two gases called sulfur dioxide and sulfur trioxide, both of which are poisonous or toxic. Also, when burning, the sulfur transforms into a liquid state and the flame is blue in color, which represents the hottest of all flames. Uh, as a comparison, when I went through this, I showed the Sunday school class uh, the temperatures of flame in Fahrenheit. They have different colors as they get hotter. Uh, if you can say the coolest flame, <laughs> if there is such a thing, uh, the least intense flame, how about that, is the red flame, which is measured about 980 to 1800 degrees Fahrenheit. The next color is orange, which is about 1800 to 2000 degrees. Yellow is next, which is from 2000 to 2400. Then it goes to white, which is 2,400 to 2,600. And then finally, there's blue, which is 2,600 to 3,000. Now, on contact with water or moisture, these gases formed from sulfur form acids. And the English origin of the word brimstone comes from the Middle English word brimstone which came from the early English words burning, meaning to burn, and stone. So in our English language, the original was Berninston, and then it became Brinston, and today we call it Brimstone. The International Standard Bible Dictionary says, and I quote, The word translated brimstone probably referred originally to the pitch of trees like the cypress. By analogy, it has been rendered brimstone because of the inflammability of both substances. Sulfur existed in Palestine in early times and was known by most of the ancient nations as a combustible substance. In the vicinity of the Dead Sea, even at the present time, deposits of sulfur are being formed. Blankenhorn... Uh, Okay, in the Journal of the German-Palestinian Society in 1896, uh, believes that this formation is due to the action of bituminous matter upon gypsum, as these two substances are found associated with each other in this district. Travelers going from Jericho to the Dead Sea may pick up lumps of sulfur, which are usually encrusted with crystals of gypsum. Deuteronomy 29.23 well describes the present aspect of this region, that the inhabitants of the land had experienced the terrors of burning sulfur is very probable. Once one of these deposits took fire, it would melt and run in burning streams down the ravine, spreading everywhere, suffocating fumes such as come from the ordinary brimstone match. No more realistic figure could be chosen to depict terrible suffering and destruction. It is not at all unlikely that during some of the disastrous earthquakes 
which took place in this part of the world, the hot lava sent forth, ignited not only the sulfur, but also the bitumen, and added to the horrors of the earthquake and destruction caused by burning pitch and brimstone, end quote. And the passage there that he's talking about, Deuteronomy 29, uh, I'm going to read verse 21 through 25 just so you kind of get the whole picture of what's going on here. It said, And the Lord shall separate him unto evil out of all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law, so that the generation to come of your children that shall rise up after you and the stranger that shall come from a far land shall say when they see the plagues of that land, and the sicknesses which the Lord hath laid upon it, and that the whole land, this is verse 23 he's talking about, and that the whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning, that it is not sown nor bared, beareth, nor any grass groweth therein, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboam, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Verse 24. Even all nations shall say, Wherefore hath the Lord done thus unto this land? What meaneth the heat of this great anger? Then men shall say, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them, when he brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. <clears throat> okay. That brings us to verse 21. And I'm going to have to do a separate podcast. I don't think I'm going to be able to get through this. Yeah, I'm not going to rush it. <laughs> it's just too important to rush through it. So if it's short, then it's short. But be as it may, we'll hold it for the next podcast. Okay, so we'll stop there. Uh, thank you once again for joining. I uh, hope you've enjoyed that. Uh, I hope maybe you've learned something, like I always say. Um, remember to pray for me. Pray for each other. Pray for your local church. Pray for our country. And uh, once again, thank you for joining us today. Uh, I certainly hope you have learned something. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, and hopefully you'll join us on the next podcast. All right. God bless you. Have a great day.